Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? Hello, jazz hands. Wait, wait, what, what, what's jazz hands for? Because I'm excited about that already. Well, I'm ready to break out into song and a choreographed dance number where people just pour out of the houses. Wait, no, wait, what is this? Well, it goes with our guest today. Oh, that... <laughs> this is where my brain is. My brain is permanently on a bike because I'm... Well, I was about to ask you, you know, I'm ready to break out into song, but how are you feeling after your tour de Ohio? Well, I'm a little grumpy still. I had, I'm training for a century ride. I decided I'd like to ride 101 miles this year <clears throat> in one day. And doing a fundraiser with the organization that maintains the towpath in this area. And it's a wonderful resource to have. Really excited to be participating. But this weekend, I was really not feeling my training. I was supposed to be in Chicago, and that trip got canceled. And I instead had to ride 75 miles on Saturday. And I was grumpy the entire day. I did not want to be out there. I have been meaning to buy a new bike seat for weeks and about 40 miles in. I said, that's it. I'm in the town where there's a nice bike shop. I am getting a seat right now. I walked into the shop and I said, I am grumpy. I need a new seat. <laughs> Just sell me something. And the poor guys, they, they were laughing. And they're like, do you want us to put it on? I'm like, I carry around these stupid tools. <laughs> Let me try doing it myself. If I come crying, you'll know. They loaned me a wrench. And then they said, well, this is great. They said, you know, if you if you came back and you weren't crying, I, we, we thought about offering you a job. <laughs> to which, after I walked my bike a ways down to get past, past some restaurants and things that weren't rideable through, I got on my bike and I realized that my brain did not do the connection of if you add two inches of gel onto your seat... Then you don't touch your feet don't touch anymore. Yes. So I did not go back crying to say help me get my seat down. But I did pull out my little dinky. It's not dinky. It's a nice multi tool. But it's really it is a little tough to work with and fixed my seat. And then well, grumped you know, it grumped it all the way home. You learned a lot about road racing. Uh, yeah. You learned how important the people in the car. Yes, very much so. But I, I did wonder while I was on the road again, my fascination with how does the Peloton work came back and how do you ride so close to each other and maintain a speed and how do you agree what speed you should be riding and get sandwiches back and forth to each other. Put it on the list. All right. We'll work on it. <laughs> okay. So, but let's go back to happier news, which is jazz hands. Jazz hands. <laughs> 
<laughs> Today we are talking with Gordon Leary and Julia Meinwald, the creative team behind the musical The Magnificent Seven. Gordon and Julia have been working together since the early 2000s and write musicals they describe as aggressively empathetic in which people find connection and build community. Some of their other musicals include Pregnancy Pact, which was inspired by a surge of pregnancies at a Massachusetts high school, which the principal claimed was because of a pact among the girls. And also another musical called The Loneliest Girl in the World about Anita Bryant, who was a noted anti-LBGTQ plus activist. The Magnificent Seven takes place over the two days of competition during the Women's Team Artistic Gymnastics Competition at the Atlanta 1996 Olympics, site of the infamous Carrie Strug Vault, which may or may not have helped propel the women, the American women to win the first team gold medal in their Olympic history. We recorded this interview in July when the show was having a limited run off Broadway. It's going to head to Flint, Michigan in spring 2023 for its world premiere at the Flint Repertory Theater. Take a listen to our conversation with Gordon and Julia. So Magnificent Seven as a musical. Yes. Where did that come from in your heads? Well, it actually, it's been in my head since about 1998 when I was in high school and realized that musicals are things that are written by people and that I could be one of those people who does that. And it's a story that kind of has it all. It has wonderful characters. It has built-in drama. It has an amazing combination of personal stories and larger universal stories and so it just has always been in the back of my mind. And then Julia and I met in grad school in the mid-2000s, the mid-aughts. And it was one of the first story ideas that we ever discussed when we were thinking about things, full-length things we might write. But we actually waited a few years before beginning it. And it kind of fits in the wheelhouse of the kinds of stories we like to tell. We like to tell a lot of stories about communities, about communities of women, about growing up and kind of what it means to find your identity. And yeah, it just has always sung to us. And it's been fun finding all the different permutations of how it sings. So how grounded in research is this? Or are the characters more musical theater developments? There is a fair amount of research. The story takes place distinctly over the two days of the team competition. So it's grounded and rooted in those facts. And we certainly read about them, watched them, all of those things. But I would say it's equally about our nostalgia for it and the way that we remember them. And also trying to marry or figure out or navigate the difference between who NBC told us they were and who they actually are. And a lot of the writing process has been cracking that open or trying to crack that open. And of course, there are archetypes and things that are useful for storytelling. We don't, you know, this is by no means a documentary, but it is certainly, we like to say, rooted in what we think is the emotional truth of those two days. So, Julia, when you're talking about the music, and you have 10 characters, I think, in the show. 11. 11. How are you finding the different musical voices and matching them up with what Gordon is doing with the story and the lyrics? 
Yeah, I think generally when I think about musical voice and vibe, I think more about a sound for the show than for a specific character. Like if you compare the score for this show, which is inspired by 90s pop with, say, the score to our show about Anita Bryant and the gay rights activist who pied her. And that's a little bit more, you know, that's a story that starts earlier in our history. It's slightly more jazz influenced. It's got a trumpet in it, whereas this is a lot of electric guitar. So I think a lot in terms of world building as opposed to having 11 different sounds. I will say the exception to that is there's a surreal number about halfway through the show where we... As Gordon was saying, we try to be faithful to the essence of who these gymnasts were, but we speculate wildly about this sort of dream sequence of the three commentators, John Tesh, Tim Daggett, and Elfie Schlegel. And those three get their own sound. They leave pop rock world and get this sort of highly theatricalized, sort of Kurt Vilish type sound, just to make them distinct from the gymnasts that were focused on. Okay, I'm so glad you mentioned them because we have to talk about Elfie Schlegel and what you did with Elfie Schlegel because any of the listeners will know I have a special place in hell reserved for her. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> so you have John Tesh and, and Tim Daggett and Elfie Schlegel announcing as they did. Is any of that dialogue actually what they said? Yeah, we, we consider it found text. And it's, I would say, a good, what have we settled on, Julia? 60-ish percent? Yeah, yeah. So some of the more egregious things that are said are certainly the infamous, what is it? Can, there's something in the air this warm Olympic night. Can you feel it? Little girls dancing for gold. That kind of stuff is in there. But we do try to understand, especially Elfie, try to understand where she fits into the trajectory of like the life of a gymnast and what it means to have competed in a sport that really you're done by a certain point. And with her, she, because of po global politics, never made it to the Olympics. And she's certainly, she's an interesting character in the show that I think we have grown to appreciate more as we've written, at least again, at least our imagined version of Elfie Schlegel. <laughs> they all say just horrible things. Well, and constantly. that was just, that announcing was just horrific. It, it, just 90, 1996 gymnastics announcing was jaw-dropping in every way. Yeah, we use a, some of the language from a few of the like athlete packages and some of the things that they say about, you know, they make Dominique Dawes story about how she's persevered in the face of her parents' divorce, which is just so egregiously invasive. And yeah, it's interesting and obviously gets laughs and all of that because it's so egregious. But it is that, again, it's this weird, the like narratives that are created about them are so strange. So in the show, Dominique Mochianu, who we read her biography as part of our book club, gets a really wonderful moment. And, you know, she gets introduced as the 14-year-old darling and she gets this wonderful solo. Where did that come from? And what do you think of her in that moment and since writing the show? I find Dominique Mochianu to be really interesting because I think it's strange to tell the story of, as John Tesh says, 14-year, 299-day-old 
Dominique Mochianu. And I think we have been able to see the story of her after those Olympics has been so wonderful and important that it's been tricky to let this character be the one just competing before her falls on vault and things like that when she is like full of hope and is the the future of the sport and all of those things and we have a little epilogue at the end and one of the things that always gets I think one of the nicest if not most audible energy shifts is when she talks about how she testified before Congress about abuse in the sport and that's a topic that has been tricky to navigate but I think the Dominique that we have tried to present is a prodigy, which is what she was, and just somebody who has had this story constructed about her. And her story in our show is starting to understand that that is not the story that she has to live. Now, you mentioned abuse, and that's obviously the big story in the past 10 years around women's gymnastics. How do you manage that when you're writing a musical comedy that is some very funny moments and some very winks to the audience moments, but not taking away the seriousness of that. To interject really quickly, I'm sure this is going to be a Gordon question, but I don't think we necessarily do categorize this as a musical comedy. I mean, we hope there's funny moments, but I think most of the things we write, we're sort of just hanging out in that place between comedy and drama. And I don't know. Yeah, anyway, just a quick precursor to whatever brilliant thing Grin's about to say. Yeah, I actually, this run has, I think, solidified that this is a show that's really more than anything like a character study because the plot, most people coming in know what's going to happen, all of those things. So it's really a way to like dive deep into some of the issues of bodily autonomy and what it means to be gifted and what it means to be looking to to a future that's not guaranteed for you and all of those things. In terms of the kind of shadow of abuse that hangs over everything, I, I would say that it was important to us that that's not the only story to tell in gymnastics. We nod to it a few times. It's ever present. We hear the voice of Bella and what that inspires in each of the gymnasts and how they navigate their own relationships in relief, I guess, is that the phrase? <laughs> or in opposition to the adults in the room who don't always have their best interest emotionally, physically, all of those things. And I think that's been part of our writing. One of the first songs we wrote for the show was called is called My Body Is, and it's just in some ways, like a body horror song <laughs> where they, there are little monologues about some of the most intense injuries that are suffered and married to this discussion about how they are teenagers whose bodies really so many people lay claim to them. And so I think all of those things relate back to the larger issues, both with, of, of all kinds of abuse in the sport. We, we try to do it with a light touch. I keep thinking about there's there's a lyric in the surreal commentator song when they're talking about Elfie and they say, even if we all pretend there's a choice that she could make. And I always like the way that that lyric sort of bounces off of the situation that you find Carrie in at the end of the show. That I do think in a lot of ways, Carrie vaulting at the end of the show it feels like a, you know, a musical finale and you really feel the triumph of her landing. But hopefully the show you've experienced up to that point 
sort of put you in a mental place to be thinking about how much did she feel like doing this vault was a choice she could make or not? So do you think she had a choice? Because it's something we've talked about before. Yeah. I mean, it's a really tricky thing. You know, I don't think any of us can ever know. I think you can look at everything you know about the pressures they were under, about the way that they interacted with their coaches, about the way that this entire event and this entire sport was framed for them. But I mean, I think we like to ask questions more than we like to answer questions, which would be an easy way out. But I think we're not trying to claim that we know one way or the other. But it's an interesting, the question you just asked is one we're interested in as well. Yeah, because it's a question of what kind of agency she was ever allowed. One of the, in that My Body song, one of the thing, one of the stories we tell is Shannon Miller injuring her elbow and all of the medical decisions that were made for her that she didn't really have a say in, that she didn't, it wasn't put in a cast. And even if they explain things to her, I feel like so much of the culture is, you know, your coach, you believe your coach has your best interest in mind, even though that interest isn't simply your own. How did this go from idea to what it is now? And especially like trying to figure out how do we tell the story and then landing on the we'll focus on the competition. I think from the beginning, we talked about it being just over those two days. That seemed like a really kind of neat case or or boundary for the storytelling. I think what's, a, or I don't know if it surprised us, what we discovered was how much we were enjoying getting into the minds of these moments. And so I think it became, as we were writing, we've been writing it for... We started writing it in earnest in 2016. And I think as we were writing, it became much more song focused and much more, I would still consider it a musical, but it has elements of a song cycle or a concert feel almost. That's a good lead into a question for Julia about where do you find the moments to put in song or where are the moments that song is the more appropriate vehicle to move the story forward? I'll try to answer that, but I will say that's that's really Gordon's decision as well. Gordon does all of the book, which includes figuring out who sings when about what. But I guess I will say as a tangent that we've always found that when we start to write, the quickest way for us to try to figure out for ourselves who people are and what they're feeling is exploring it through song. So we often do sort of look for the moments with the most emotional heat and sort of write those songs and then use that as a scaffold to build the rest of the show off of. So over the six years, what are some of the big changes that have happened in terms of, I know some characters have come and gone and things you probably hated to see go. Yeah, I'm the worst offender. I absolutely hate cutting anything. I feel like you work so hard on the song that it's so sad to jettison it, but sometimes you have to. But let's see. There have been a couple. We had a previous attempt at a Shannon Miller song that I was sad to see go. I bet it was called Enough, and it was more specifically focused on her getting flack for not smiling. Which, which she definitely did. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think the commentators over the course of it have changed a lot. I think we initially thought of them just as a device almost and getting to explore them 
and the way they relate to one another and giving them a song, I think was a, was a big moment for us, a big moment of realization for us, which happened probably three or so years into working on it. Another genius we pivoted a bit on was Dominique Daz. One of the first songs we wrote from, for the show was a song for her, specifically about being potentially the first American Black gymnast to win a gold medal. And then thinking about it more, wanting to give her a moment that definitely touches on her experience of race in the Olympics, but doesn't it doesn't have to be okay you get a song about race and now her song is about loving actually the love of the sport she is really the only song that's about i do this because i love it and this is what loving it feels like yeah we realized after our most recent reading that or most recent as in 2019 the summer of 2019 that no one ever talked about the things they liked <laughs> in doing gymnastics in the show so we really we found yeah we found i think a really nice a nice way to like one of the opening lines is there's always noise there's always chatter but when you're in the middle of the moment is how it gets into the into the course is that like the actual love of the sport is the reason that they all keep going how did the pandemic affect the development of this show well we were slated <laughs> to do a version of this production in the summer of 2020. So we literally, we kicked off our fundraising in February of 2020 and then quickly realized that we were not going to be able to do that production is scheduled. So it's really just been waiting, biding our time. And I think we had the theater we were originally going to work with, I think put a little bit of pressure on us to do a version of this in 20. I guess it was early 2021, but they were having these conversations with us in late 2020 before we had a vaccine. And we really resisted that because, I mean, while the world certainly has not become a safe and easy place, now is the earliest that we felt comfortable even attempting it. You know, since we are producing this show as well as writing it, we feel a degree of responsibility for everyone involved and we want to make sure that we can create some semblance of safety for them. Yeah. So, so far, it's been mostly staged readings. Do I have yes. that right? Yeah, up until now, up until this production, we've always done it just people at music stands with their with their binders in front of them. So this is the first time that we've gotten to see what what it's like to do a gymnastics musical without any gymnastics and how that lives in space and moves and all of those things. So what are some of the issues yeah. <laughs> of doing a gymnastics musical with no gymnastics? Well, I will say my, one of my favorite quotes Julia's ever given is that the only gymnastics done on stage are the, of the vocal variety. <laughs> because Julia writes some incredible, incredible seven-part harmonies for those gymnasts. And so I do think there is a certain virtuosity in that that can stand in some places. But we've been working with a really wonderful choreographer just to figure out a movement language that can stand in at times and just thinking about the shapes of the different events and the way we can we have a 16 by 20 stage with four musicians and 10 actors on it at any given time so there's not a lot of space to move around so it's been about a lot about suggestion and kind of tableau and and things like that how do you handle the the infamous Carrie Strug fault. 
actually our director had a really we think um really smart solution which is since people most people coming to it can picture what it looked like that it wasn't about we have a song that kind of walks through the run the round off the twist and the landing but rather than trying to show anything on stage the whole song is a preparation for the vault and so the only real athleticism that we have on stage is at the very end of the show carrie prepares to start the vault and starts to run and then we go to a blackout which is i think has been really thrilling and really fun to withhold that from the audience for so long and then let us see it right at the very end. It has been something interesting to navigate, though, dealing with the fact that people come in with very different levels of what they know and what they remember about this event. You know, there's some people who come in, they know which commentator lines are verbatim, they know who got which scores on every event, they know it all. And there's some who are vaguely like, oh, 96, was that the, the year that Carrie Strug was there? And to sort of track how all of those different audience members are experiencing the story has been interesting. I was going to ask, how has the gym turnout taken to the show? Yeah, I think I think pretty well. We had a we had a group of the gym turnout in at our Saturday matinee, and we did a talk back with them, and it was really interesting to yeah be in dialogue with those folks. I think that some people were wary of us when they knew that this musical was happening and they hadn't heard a word of it or a note of it. I think there was some worry that it was going to be you know. The Magnificent Seven, the musical exclamation point, a comedy celebrating child abuse in the sport. <laughs> and it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is hard to, to control. I mean, if you even can control what someone will think about your work before they see your work. But I think that concern was there. And I hope that some of those concerns are laid when people do see the story we're trying to tell. But it's been amazing to have people traveling in to see it, who heard about it via the Gymtronet and via other interviews we've done. Because it, I think as a, a layman or a, a, I don't, now I can't remember what- Was what it normal? Name. As a normal, yes. <laughs> as the Gymtronet at the Talkback called us. As a normal, it's been wonderful to see other people for whom this moment meant so much. I think, you know, we always joke that this is a musical written for people born between 1980 and 1988 in a lot of ways people who were just the right age that this really like meant something in growing up and that nostalgia factor i think a lot of the gymtronet folks who've come to see it fall into that category too and it's one of the things that that led them to you know or they were doing gymnastics around the same time so these were people they idolized yeah it's been really rewarding to be embraced by people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> How much did you know about gymnastics? Again, we're, we're normals. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of what I knew about gymnastics was my memories of this. I think we all did gymnastics as children. My older sister was a gymnast. I mean, a high school gymnast, not by, didn't continue in college or anything. And obviously watch the Olympics, watch world championships and things like that. And so follow well enough to know, but casually, which I think is another reason that people have been wary of of the show. I think it's always hard to come at a story from an angle that's different from the angle of, of the core fandom. And I think, I hope that that skepticism has been, has been quelled a little. And Julia? 
Yeah, I did. I did gymnastics when I was a very little kid. My mom was telling me a story that I was a very petite child, and apparently, when I looked at the balance beam, I said, "That's too small for me," and I didn't attempt it. <laughs> but most of what I've learned, I've learned from the research Gordon has done and shared with me. The gymnasts have very specific physicality. You know, these are very, very tiny girls and very, very young. And obviously your performers are not necessarily going to fit into that. So how are you working with, you know, I noticed on one of the readings, one of the girls was very tall. And so, I mean, it struck me because the gymnasts are so small. So how are you reconciling or dealing with the the physicality and then the demands of the singing? Yeah, so there's the physicality. And then another thing that we've had a lot of conversations about is the age that most of the women, it didn't completely end up this way, but in our original vision, the idea is to cast the gymnasts of people about our age, which is, you know, like Gordon was saying, you know, born in the 80s, to sort of tap into the idea that in some level, these people are performing a memory or an idea of a person at a time, as opposed to trying to exactly replicate that person with the exception of we have there's one character the 11th character who's a vision from 1984 spoiler it's Mary Lou <laughs> and we like the idea that most of the gymnasts are cast sort of with this sense of an adult awareness and retrospection but the vision of Mary Lou appears as a ver as a young young woman who looks like a gymnast, just sort of to contrast that. Yeah, and I think we also found as we were writing how parallel kind of the world of theater and the world of gymnastics is, especially in the way participants are discussed, and I think we were struck by that and wanted to lean into that with different body types and and different ages and all of those things because I do think that the things that they sing about are applicable to so much. J.C. Phelps sings a song called The Girl Who Fell After She Falls Off the Balance Beam and it's really it's about a moment of fear that your life is simply going to be defined by one single mistake and I think that that goes obviously it's when you're in front of an international audience it's a different feeling but I think the undercurrent of the emotions of that apply to everyone our guitar player was joking that song has this sort of a difficult guitar part and he was like the irony of almost making a mistake on the guitar part in the song about how making a mistake and it defines you <laughs> have you heard from any of the real people yes and no um Gordon and I haven't reached out to or spoken with any of the real people, but the actress playing Dominique Dawes has been Instagram messaging, I'm so old, I don't know if that's the right term, with the real Dominique Dawes. Just a very, she got a very nice message of support, a lot because Dominique came to Broadway after the 96 Olympics. And so she posted about how hearing about the show made her nostalgic for her time on Broadway. And so they've had some, a little nice conversation. Has working on the show distorted your memory of the games or what you remember? Because I will say working on this podcast has totally messed with what I know or don't know about Lake Placid 1980 and the Miracle on Ice game. Hmm. 
That's a really interesting question. I think we certainly, for me at least, some of the archetypes of the characters that we've found have maybe, I'm surprised going back and seeing the, seeing the actual performances that the energy is a little different. But I think for the most part, you know, I've gone back and rewatched pretty frequently over the course, partially to if I need to find new commentator, new horrible things that the commentators have said. The or gift just, that keeps on giving. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> that yeah, that's a very deep well. So I think I think it's actually been fun to stay connected to it over so many years and see it in new ways. But there are moments that will Oh, I mean, the moment that I think of almost every single night is the look on Dominique Mochianu's face after Carrie's first vault when she falls as well. And just looking and you can tell she's concerned for her friend. She's concerned for the team. It's a moment that I think of every that is connected that we don't show on stage. But I have that thought every night. The show is going to move to Flint in yeah. the spring to do its world premiere. Bigger stage? Yes. Do you all Different have... shape, at least. Okay. I, I was going to say, do you have input in how the staging expands, or is that more of the director's purview? I think it's really different with each process. We've been very lucky that so far we've worked with directors who are really solicitous of our input, and we love working that way. And we hope that that will be the case in Flint as well, especially with, with such an early production of a new work. It is very meaningful to us to be able to have that input and be a collaborator in making sure that the physical embodiment is in line with what you're picturing. And I think the show in particular, because so much has to, the world has to be constructed from the bottom up. I think it's going to be a fun challenge to reimagine some of the things that we've seen in this initial developmental production. I was going to say, are there moments that you see now that during this run, now that you see it on stage and produced that you're like, oh, we need to tweak this? Absolutely. We have an email thread going about that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have, I think, five major points right now that we've been talking about. And we haven't even compared notes with our director yet. So I think there will be a lot of things... I mean, I don't know how how much wholesale rewriting there will be, but I think it certainly inspired our imaginations in a fun way, rather than a daunting way, hopefully. How has this changed how you watched Tokyo or Beijing this year? Well, I mean, I think it's hard to not about the parallel with Simone Biles. And I just think it was inescapable. There was no way to escape that discussion finding its way into the show and being in dialogue with that and the the way the world has looked at gymnastics differently opposite of what you asked. But I think I also think I'm inventing inner monologues for everyone at all times. Uh, and so it's been it's been fun to think about where there are parallels and where there are whole new experiences to be. Yeah, I've definitely been more aware, like Gordon was saying before, about when I find myself experiencing a sort of a narrative for a gymnast, thinking about how much of that is being shaped by or, you know, fed to me in a very sort of intentional, explicit way and how much of that is really to be believed. Well, and it's interesting because the way we thought about gymnastics and especially 
John Tesh's lovely language back in 1996 and what we think and know today just about that sport and the mental challenges that elite athletes go through. How do you work on today's mentality in a show about the past? That is such a great question. Yeah, it is a fine line. I think that you're, the, the sort of implication there is that you're right, that we don't want to necessarily be ascribing all the beliefs and ideas that we have today to those people at that time. And I think it's a little bit of crossing our fingers and having faith that, that the audience will see that by showcasing some of the moments and ideas that we try to showcase, that that's where sort of the more modern perspective comes in. I would say that, I mean, not to act like we were prescient in any way, but I think we wanted to approach this from a from a position of interrogating what was going on. And I think I think that even six years ago or seven years ago when we began it, like when you can take a step back and and hear the things that were being said and obviously with we knew about the issues with the Corollis and the and all of that, I think the problems were maybe closer to the surface than we necessarily even imagined when we started. I think the biggest change leading into this production was we had always been resistant about including the coaches. We'd always thought this is a story about the public facing things and the way that the audience experiences it. But I think in so many ways, I mean, in every way that it's, it's inescapable. And so we did purposely put in a few instances of hearing Bella, just hearing a recording of Bella saying you can do it or our friend doing his best Bella impersonation because, and that came directly from the, our experience of watching the last Olympics and, and Simone Biles' bravery and, and ability to speak for herself and break through the kind of like, Paul of power over her. Well, yeah. And when in 1996, Bella was such a larger than life figure. And when you started working on this in 2016, I mean, NBC was doing documentaries or pseudo documentaries on the Caroli Ranch and just how much he was a larger than life figure. So taking the story off the coaches for once in gymnastics lives, so to speak, mm -hmm. might be the better way to tell a story. Yeah, we hope so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have you come away with a favorite of the seven that you did not expect? Mm. Oh, gosh. It's like choosing among your children, Allison. And I don't <laughs> even have any. I know this question. <laughs> Truly. I feel like... Which is why I'm... I have one child. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the show at its core is 100% about adoration and about respect and about more than anything the example that that was set for people in our little micro generation by those seven gymnasts so i think them as a team this is a cop-out it may be but really the way they were as it seems gymnastics teams are just kind of like forced together after competing against one another and all of that i think the moment that you hear that they refuse to go out and accept their medal without Carrie, that they just did not move backstage. Backstage, I say, as a theater person. I think that that kind of the family they built and the collaboration they built is 
is the thing that that I come away with and the thing that I'm look the kind of fresh perspective that I I'm looking at the show for next steps to really emphasize. Yeah, and from year to day, it almost changes night to night. I mean, we worked really hard to try to give each of the seven gymnasts a complete arc in the show and, you know, a, a journey somewhere to go. And watching the way that each of our actresses really individuates her person and lives through that arc each night has been really helpful and really sort of like just feeling who our versions of these women are. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Allison, anything else? I just want to tell you, I love the poster so much. Oh, we were inspired by paper dolls because it felt like just an apt metaphor for so much. <laughs> and, and I do love the description that the stage is leotard blue. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. Our set designer just could not stop talking about sports blue. And it's that, <laughs> it's that, you know, the floor, the, the mat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is... And as our director lovingly joked that in our world, sports blue is neutral. That's a, the new neutral. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent. Thank you so much for letting us know about the show. We're really excited and we're looking forward to it having a longer life in many other locations. And hopefully many of our listeners will get to see it. Thank you so much, and thank you for thank having you so us. Much. This was such a fun discussion to have. We are thrilled that we got to spend an hour chatting with y'all. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Gordon and Julia. You can follow them at gordonandjulia.com and on Insta at Gordon and Julia Musicals. So as we mentioned, the world premiere will be at the Flint Repertory Theater in Flint, Michigan from March 31 through April 16, 2023. Single tickets go on sale September 1st. If you would like to go with other listeners, email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Flint is not that far away from me, so I am hitting the road for this show. And I'm looking to go during its last weekend, which would be either Friday the 14th, Saturday the 15th, which both of those shows are at 8 p.m. and Sunday the 16th is a 2 p.m. matinee. If you're interested, let us know, flamealivepod at gmail.com, and maybe we can get a group together. That sound means it's time for our history moment. All year long, we are talking about Albertville 1992. It is the 30th anniversary of those Winter Olympics. Last week, we had a part two. This week, also a part two. Excellent. Going back to Le Parcours de la Flamme. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. The torch relay. So last time we talked about the torch itself, a Philippe Stark production, uh, the torch bearers outfits and La Poste as co-sponsor <laughs> just you know you got two more years two more years of fun of jill's french accents <laughs> so today let's talk a little bit about the relay itself we can blame la 1984 for making the torch relay the spectacle that it is today because it had been previous to that been fairly low-key but apparently L.A. made it a major spectacle and millions of people came out to watch the torch relay. And Albertville got awarded the games in 1986. So they have seen the spectacle and they're like, oh, well, you know, hey. But Calgary and Seoul continued the craze. So now it's a thing and the pressure is on. Luckily, they have La Poste for their co-sponsor to do the 57-day relay. And the route goals were to 
start in Paris. You hit all the regional capitals. You hit stage towns that would be about 100 kilometers apart. You hit all the big towns so that you don't get anybody upset politically. <laughs> can, you, can, can you imagine the back end talking about this? Oh, they did not come to my town. They estimated that the average running speed would be 10 kilometers an hour. That's pretty fast. This is a nine-minute, 41-mile pace. <laughs> That's what I thought. You see them shuffle today because they have so many torchbearers and everybody gets like 100 meters. They assumed that everyone would just be trucking along with this thing. <laughs> there would be no running at night. And, of course, you would go through all regions of the Savoy, which was the host city department. So they broke down the daily route kilometer by kilometer with the help of IBM computers, which a big deal because it's 1992 and computers are still they're They're useful, but it's not the same as it is today. La Poste was it, this turned out to be like the greatest sponsorship in the history of Torch Relay because they helped figure out if there was road construction issues and if there were tunnels that they could get all of the, the trucks through or if they would get stuck in them. <laughs> the, post, the postman knows. That's right. And they could do this, all of this reconnaissance, more cheaply than any other sponsor. Because they're there anyway. Okay, so then you add the caravan. And there were four vehicles in this caravan driving a... And they would also drive at the normal running speed of 10 kilometers an hour. So you had a press vehicle in front, and that's where journalists could work or the VIPs could go to be entertained. Then you had the runner. You had a special relay control vehicle that coordinated security measures and had a really powerful projector, which could announce the arrival or presence of the torch for miles around. Can you? This I want to hear. Do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> then it also this is kind of cool for 1992 it had a radio beacon on it so you could track the torch and know where it was and they they had it on computer within 300 meters they could track how far this torch was so that's pretty good sort of like the norad santa tracker exactly exactly then they had a renault backup vehicle for repairs if necessary and then a red cross vehicle to provide medical aid to the runners and escorts <laughs> If they collapsed because of the 10 kilometer per hour Apparently. Speed. Apparently. So your day followed a general pattern. At 7 a.m., you'd leave the first stage town. Every, every runner had to run a kilometer. Yeah, so they were running pretty far and pretty fast. Well, in part one of the story, they did not do a good job of asking for promoting the idea of having torchbearers. So not a whole lot of people applied. So maybe they had to go every kilometer. And then the escorts went every five kilometers and, and changed out the torch ten. At 6.45, they would arrive in the stage town for the night. They would be received by the mayor. At 7 p.m., there would be a light and laser show, which would be at the town's main square. And then they would have this 3D inflatable structure composed of shapes and pyramids and cones and spheres, which could be adapted to the size of the town square. There'd be a replica of the cauldron that would be lit and raised up. And the torchbearer and the escort were followed by all these other runners onto the square through a guard of honor. And then the light and laser show would be about 20 minutes long. And it would, this is what the official report says, would transform 
the inflatable structure into a living sculpture. I so want to see video of this. But how did it actually go? I, I guess it went well. I don't know. And the cool thing for the towns is that the show was free. The torch really provided the show free for the towns. But, you know, if you wanted to close with something special like fireworks, which I think was suggested, the, the town had to foot the bill for that. So th this is also a quote from the official report for, for which I'm very curious if this is the actual number. So each evening, 10 to 50,000 people came together on the squares to take part in the spectacles. Okay, wait, 10, like 10 or 10,000 to 50,000? That is what I don't know. Oh. <laughs> and, and that is, because of course I hinged on that too, or I fixated on that too. Can you imagine the stage where just like 10 people came out and they had watched this light and laser show and went, ooh la la, and then walked back home? <laughs> well, they got a personal laser show. But thank goodness the drone, the laser shooting drone that they were talking about for Paris hadn't been developed yet because those 10 people would be done. They would be French toast. And then last on the schedule of the evening, post-show cocktails with the mayor. Perfect. <laughs> Not a bad day. Not a bad day. So... They had a few special things. You know, the spectacle in Paris was pretty big because it was the, the kickoff of the relay. The torch came in on the Concorde, which is a supersonic jet. That was a big deal. And in Paris, they were there for a few days, it seemed like. And their last show was staged with fireworks and choreography by several hundred postmen and women from the Paris region. Which I also want to see this choreography. Oh, so the mail carriers... Yeah, so they had a big show in, in Paris, and, and the mail carriers did some kind of choreographic movement. Did it involve, like, swinging packages around? Oh, gosh, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be, be great? like, what was that, broad oh, bro that Broadway musical Newsies, where they do the choreography <laughs> with newspapers? We can hope. Why I'm not? Still One of the other special stops was that they did stop at Pierre de Coubertin's childhood home. And torchbearers affixed the flame to the wall and let it sit there for several minutes next to the plaque commemorating the 100th anniversary of his birth. So had a little ceremony there. Official report says the torch relays was attended across all 57 days by 10 million people. And they had this brochure that went out to also several million people to give like the time by time of where the torch would be. And when? So that, you know, you could close the shop for a few minutes and come see the flame. Ooh la la. Of course, the name of the last runner was Secret, as per usual now. And it turned out to be Michel Platini, the most famous of French footballers, who came into the stadium carrying a torch. He stopped in the stadium to meet up with this eight-year-old kid because, again, we've got to have the little child. Nothing says opening ceremonies like a cute little kid. Right. So this was a kid who was in a photograph of a few kids and he was smiling. So he got chosen. His name was uh, Francois Cyril Grange, who is now 39 years old. Francois actually did become a alpine skier very briefly, but did not have much of a career. And he is now the head trainer at the Valois Ski Club. His brother is Jean-Baptiste Grange, who was a double slalom world champ. His parents were both skiers as well. 
on the French team. He was told just a couple of minutes before he went on stage that he was going to be meeting up with Michel Platini and kind of knew who he was because his father loved football. So they've got the Michelle's running through the stadium and then the the boy comes out and he tries to do the little kiss that you do in greeting and Francois Sorel recoiled. He did not want to be kissed. <laughs> he's a nine year old kid. Yeah. Yeah. So they went up the stairs of the stadium together, long, long stairway and up on top of this box on which Francois Sorel almost stumbled and the the boy lit a ball of fire, which flew up to the cauldron on a wire, and the cauldron was lit. He, Francois Sorel, apparently keeps in touch with the little girl who sang the national anthem a cappella at the opening ceremony, which is kind of a nice touch. Very sweet. It would have been better if they had gotten married. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true, too. But, you know, keeping in touch, that's pretty good. As for Michel, he was a former France national team captain and manager of football was president of the UFEA until he was banned from football for eight years in 2015 over a corruption charge where he and former FIFA president Sepp Blatter had supposedly unlawfully arranged for FIFA to pay Platini a very large money sum of money for consulting. But this year, a Swiss court cleared the two of corruption charges. Oh, that was him. Yes. Oh, I love full circle moments like right, this. Right. So he is now cleared of charges, as he has claimed all along he was innocent. But this that incident has pretty much ended his ambitions and dreams of becoming FIFA president. And that is your torch relay for 1992. Welcome to Shuffle it is time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show who now make up our citizenship of Shuklastan, our very own country. Starting off with hammer thrower Deanna Price, she and her husband, James Lambert, have joined the coaching team at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. JC will be the throws coach and Deanna will be a volunteer, which is how JC originally got involved with coaching. So maybe coaching is in Deanna's future. She would be a great coach. Gosh, can you imagine powerhouse husband-wife throws duo coaching? Swimmer Mallory Comerford competed in Duel in the Pool, a meet between Australia and the U.S. She swam in the mixed 4x100 medley relay, the women's 4x100 medley relay, and the women's 50 and 200 free. This was a four-day dual country meet, and the U.S. defeated Australia 309 to 283. Now, you got to watch some of this, right? I did get to watch some of this. And there were some weird formats of races, you know, not typically that we've seen. And they had things, there were swimmers dropped out and got cut. And it was a lot of fun. And it was in Australia. And of course, Australians trying to beat American swimmers, they went nuts. Excellent. Excellent. Sport climber Josh Levin will be on stage two of the American Ninja Warrior finals this week. He's never been able to get through stage two, so hopefully he will meet his goal this week. And race walker Evan Dunphy finished second in the 20-kilometer walk at the NACAC Championships. That covers North America, Central America, and the Caribbean's Athletic Association. He was disappointed because he fell short of his goal of winning 
but he said his body is very tired after three big races in a short time span. And he did come away with the gold of the Commonwealth Games. Yes, yes. So that is good. So. And after this race, I believe it was in Bermuda, he posted he was sitting on the beach uh, with a pina colada and a donut. Most excellent. We've got some Tokyo 2020 news. The village has reopened. So the site is now known as Harumi Flag and is Tokyo's largest public-private housing development. There are... Uh, 4,145 refurbished flats for sale in the development, which includes a multi-mobility station that's got public transportation, community cycles, a ferry port. There's a, a whole bunch of other amenities. So it'll be interesting to see how this sells and if there will be any units up on Airbnb that we can go to. Because you did that in Montreal. Yes, and it was fabulous. Also open is the Sea Forest Waterway, which has rowing and canoeing. The canoe slalom facility is open to the public, and they're pretty much booked up for August, but they are still looking for more ways to use the facility and and have it open to public use as well. And the Oi Hockey Stadium has been reopened for public use, and it is one of the few public hockey stadiums in Japan, so it has a lot of demand already built up. So that is excellent to hear. Not excellent to hear. Follow up on a corruption story involving Aoki Holdings and Tokyo 2020 Olympics board member Harayuki Takahashi. So Takahashi and Aoki Holdings former chairman, Hironori Aoki, got arrested on Wednesday. Oh, Uncle Harayuki... So supposedly Aoki, Aoki Holdings paid only 500 million yen to be a sponsor, which is less than half of what other sponsors paid. And there was also supposedly, they have evidence of money going to Takahashi personally. So we will keep an eye on this. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, if there, there has to be money going to him because why else would you pay less for sponsorship? Right. And this was all reported in Reuters and several Japanese outlets as well. We have a little bit of news from Paris 2024. The Times in London is reporting that the UK, er, that the chairman of the BBC and ITV are asking the new prime minister of the UK to introduce a new bill to parliament, making it illegal for the summer and winter Olympics, the summer pair winter and win the summer and winter Paralympics and the Commonwealth games to be placed behind a television paywall. Discovery owns the European rights for the Olympics and Paralympics in the UK and also something like 50 other countries in Europe. And so they've negotiated to have some free coverage, but it's a fraction of what's available. And therefore, I mean, if if you thought we had feed beefs, I was reading about some feed beefs. Like people in Italy would be going, Italy's playing softball right now, but we've got some swimming on and Italy's not even competing because that's what Discovery will let us show for free. So they really want to be able to access sports that they want to watch and are important to them and not have them be behind this television paywall. So that's an interesting development. Thank you to listener Harry for that tip. I honestly, because we've got a conversation going on in the Facebook group about this. I, I think this is 
not good for the IOC as a whole. Oh, right. Because you want people around the world to be watching. That's the point to be participating and watching. And I don't know how television broadcasts work, obviously, in other countries, but in the U.S., there's lots of places still in the U.S. that are just using the free broadcast channels. You know, they don't have cable. They don't have streaming because they don't have the Internet access for it. So those broadcast channels still matter a lot, even in the U.S., where we do generally have streaming pretty available. Exactly. So when the IOC is concerned about its brand being lost in the shuffle of so many other options of things to watch, they should be concerned about this. And Discovery's got the rights for Paris 2024 as well. So we are going to see more instances of this. Although, you know, I do love a good feed beef, but not at the expense of our listeners. Absolutely not. And Inside the Games is reporting that Tahiti will be part of the torch relay. Oh, boy. I hope this is one of those times where they either put it on a boat or put it underwater. They need to put it on like one of those outrigger canoe type boats or maybe even surf with it. Exactly. So during his visit to Tahiti, Paris 2024 president Tony Estangue met with French Polynesia president Edouard Fritsch and they signed an agreement to have Tahiti be part of the torch relay, which which is is good because a lot of French cities don't want it. Right. Because it's expensive because the towns had to foot the bill. When this is all said and done, I do want to know how much this torch relay is costing and if they are still having issues with towns not signing up because they don't want to pay the cost for it, especially in today's economy. Speaking of costs, costs are rising for Milan Cortina 2026. You don't say. What a shocker. (laughs) So Inside the Games was reporting news from the Italian newspaper Il Fatto Quotidiano that the new overall costs of the Winter Olympics are going to be an estimated 2.165 billion euro. This includes essential costs for the games as well as essential, quote unquote, essential infrastructure projects like 34 road and railway projects that are deemed essential, but we already know that they won't be finished on time for the games. The original games budget was 1.58 billion euros So this is a significant increase, but I still wonder, like, how many other projects get rolled into an Olympic budget that are just like, oh, well, we were thinking about maybe doing this, but we'd put it off for another 10 years if we could, but we got these games, so let's just roll it into that budget and blame them. Cousin Tony knows the guy. (laughs) So we'll keep an eye on that as well. Also, speaking of busted budgets... The World Games is $14 million in the red, according to WBRC, a news outlet in Birmingham, Alabama. A lot of vendors are owed millions. One is owed a million plus. But uh, this is also a good conversation on our Facebook group, I will say. Listener Billy, who is a a volunteer there, um, had a lot of insight about the turnover that happened a lot in the organizing committee and also as as listener brian pointed out we forget about the covid postponement costs 
And having to keep staff on for another year, having to keep all these venues going for another year or planning for them for another year. Those costs are real and somebody has to eat them at some point. So that's pretty tough. Well, you know what else is real in terms of cost? What? Air conditioning. (laughs) I mean, Birmingham, from all the people we heard were there, was just brutal. Oh, man. And listener Billy also had this interesting point about the Floorball Federation. The International Floorball Federation was happy to be one of eight sports that had a production team, but they apologized on their website for the quality of the production team because there were a ton of infrastructure issues related throughout the event. And we'll link to this because they talked about how the level of internet provided by the organizing committee was unstable and fragile and they could not really produce the quality of stream that they wanted to. I think there were probably wires bursting into flames. (laughs) They were keeping the flame alive and not in the good way. (laughs) Oh, oh. So yeah, it's interesting when you, when you think about all the pieces that go together and, and how this works, but boy, I don't think floorball enjoyed their time. At Birmingham, at least from a feed perspective. So that we'd like to give a big shout out to our Patreon patrons who keep our flame alive. Find out more about patronage at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. And if you'd like to support the show in other ways, go to flamealivepod.com slash support. We greatly appreciate all of you who do chip in and help keep the show going. Speaking of production expenses, there are a lot here as well. So we appreciate your help as we do this independently. And by the way, you can get some back to school merch. Oh, that's right. Notebooks, t-shirts, masks. I don't know if schools are still requiring masks, but we if you go to that support page... You can get some cool stuff. Exactly. So that will do it for this week. Let us know your thoughts about the Magnificent Seven and if you're looking forward to going. You can get in touch with us through email at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. You know, we haven't talked about this, but what would you turn into a musical? What Olympic or Paralympic event would you turn into a musical? Uh, could you adapt John McLeod's, could you adapt Shuklasani John McLeod's film about Steve Jentner into a musical? I mean, it's got a lot of drama. It's also got a pool. So this, we obviously know from Magnificent Seven that you can do gymnastics without doing gymnastics. But it's a pool. Okay. Well, think about it. Let us know. I think that would be a good, that would be a nice discussion. (laughs) All right. Well, if you have opinions on what should be put on stage from an Olympic or Paralympic perspective, totally get in touch with us or get on the Facebook group and talk about it. Next week is Labor Day weekend in America, so we are going to have a lightning round, a lightning round featuring an all-athletics cast. So we're going to have Madeline Manning Mims, Evan Dunphy, and Abdi Abdirahman. So look forward to that next week. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. 